Welcome to the Genius of Your Genes Summit. Today in this interview, I'm going to be talking with Alex Howard. Um, this is an important interview. I'm really excited to hear what Alex has to say. And we're going to be sprinkling some great information about genes into our talk. But Alex is the founder and CEO of the Optimum Health Clinic. You can tell from his fantastic accent that he's in England. And um, this, the clinic is one of the world's leading integrative medicine clinics. They specialize in fatigue and related conditions like stress, which is really going to be the main focus of our, our interview here. So Alex is also the host of the Fatigue Super Conference, and we want to go into that because obviously fatigue is a huge problem, and he's got a great program that he's going to tell us about that he launches three times a year, and I'm sure that you're going to want to look into that. But um, Alex, thank you very much for saying yes. I know you're over in England, and it's a late at you know different time of the day, so um, Thank you for joining yeah, thank, us. Thank you for having me, Donna. I think it's a it's a great topic that you're that you're doing, and I think people often underestimate the importance of actually working with with genes. So I'm I'm really happy to be talking with you. Thank you. Yeah, yeah. I mean, well, the thing is, bottom line is, we have all have genes, and they're all of them are damaged by stress. So I'd like to kind of start there. But first of all, just for people that haven't don't know you yet, can you just tell how you got into the Kind of tell your story. How did you get to where you are today? Yeah, sure. Um, I this wasn't my planned career path. <laughs> I think I was I was planning on being a in a bad punk rock band as my kind of teenage kind of dream. Um, but I ended up with chronic fatigue um, when I was 16 years old, and it was kind of like waking up one morning, and if there's a plug of energy into the body, someone had pulled it out, and suddenly. Mm -hmm getting through the day just kind of became impossible. And I ended up um, a few months into that pretty much housebound and then eventually at times bedbound. And went and saw various different medical practitioners in time, alternative health practitioners, and ended up with this diagnosis of chronic fatigue syndrome. Of course, a diagnosis of chronic fatigue syndrome isn't really a diagnosis. You go in saying, I'm tired all the time, and you get told you're chronically fatigued. And it's like, well, I know that's, you've just given scientific words what I just right, told you. Yeah. What, what mm -hmm. does that mean? Like, what do I do about this? And mm -hmm. after a couple of years of just my whole life kind of really imploding, particularly, I think, teenage boys, your friendships are built around activity. And I used to play a lot of sport. I used to play, as I mentioned, kind of guitar in a quite bad uh, rock band, but I couldn't do those things. And so my kind of friendships just kind of disappeared. And I found myself in a point where it wasn't that I wanted to end my life. I, I just didn't, I couldn't see a future where I could barely get out of bed and certainly deeply struggled to get out of the house. And I had a conversation with my, with my uncle who was a kind of, um, I guess, a kind of coach or a kind of mentor to me in a sense and helped me realize that if I wanted the circumstances of my life to change, then if I was waiting for someone else to change them, I might be waiting the rest of my life. And he helped inspire me really that there were things that I could proactively do. And I ended up over the kind of subsequent five years going on this very, you know, life-changing healing journey, really, and reading over 
500 books on health and psychology and I started practicing meditation and yoga quite quite obsessively at times but every day I saw over uh, 30 35 different alternative healthcare practitioners I think at one point I was taking about 60 supplements a day I probably had the most expensive poo in, in the UK I'm not sure how much of that was actually being absorbed but I was really I ultimately realized that the ticket to my life changing was this healing journey that I was on. And there wasn't any one miracle. There wasn't one supplement that I I took or one practitioner that I saw that was a miraculous transformation. In fact, it was a combination of different things in different ways, but there were things that helped on that journey. And in the end, I made a full recovery and I... Mm. I'd done some at training. At what age? Like when you're finally well and energy back to become was, really productive again, yeah. Yeah, 22, 23 at that point. But the five years leading up to that had been a gradual path of, of progress that had been happening. And I'd managed mm-hmm. to go to university, um, although I was... Most people were out um, partying. I was sleeping and, and reading books on psychology. Um, but I, I, my whole student loan went on supplements. So that was, that was a handy um, kind of uh, thing. But I, and maybe we'll come to this, but if anyone had suggested to me that this very real physical illness that I was experiencing was psychological, it was one of the few things that would give me a spurt of energy to want to have a physical confrontation because I, it felt like someone was saying that a physical illness was just in my mind, which it very much wasn't. It was a very real physical experience. Um, but I ended up um, doing training in psychology, which was an area I became very passionate about. And then I set up the clinic that really I'd wanted to exist in the years that, that I'd been ill, which is, which is now known as the Optum Health Clinic, which has been going for um, about 16 years. And, you know, initially it was just started out of a kind of bed sit where I was um, living in North London. And we now have a team of uh, 20 full-time practitioners and patients in 40 countries. And we're actually a registered charity here um, in the United Kingdom, but really the approach that we have, I guess, partly born out of my own experience is that these conditions like fatigue, chronic fatigue, Lyme disease, fibromyalgia, ME, these are complex conditions that affect different people in different ways. And they're kind of jigsaws that need to be understand and put together. And it's a, it's a fascinating path of discovery as a practitioner, but an immensely challenging experience as a sufferer. You know, um, so I'm, I have really similar path too. I was pretty much forced to start taking care of myself because from a pretty early age, I wasn't feeling well. I was almost, I was extremely fatigued, just like you said. And yeah, I had a lot of stress in my life. Nobody was tying that in at all. But, um, you know, now fast forward, I'm really into this whole gene thing and uh, the microbiome and the, the, the microbe. In our, the microbes in our gut have their own genes and they're affecting our entire body. So it's pretty fascinating. But um, so one of the things I learned about uh, at a conference was uh, a talk actually that David Slavich gave. Um, he and his colleague, Stephen Cole at UCLA in, in, you know, down in Los Angeles, they have a whole center around genes and stress. And and they have the ability to literally take 
a picture, a panoramic picture of someone's entire genome, which is a, all the genes that we have in our body is a, is a genome. So they um, started bringing people, first animals, but then people into the lab and stressing them, you know, making them do really complicated math problems. Their stress level went way, way up. And then they take a picture of, of all their genes. And what they discovered is that the um, genes related to the immune system were greatly affected. So they, their innate immune system, the one that responds to immediate stress, uh, immediate like infection or whatever, uh, the innate immune system became very, it, it, the genes that were affected were causing a lot of inflammation in the body. And then also the genes, especially the genes that protect us from viruses were suppressed. So, so without any doubt, you know, your immune system is greatly, uh, greatly affected by stress. And so um, I just wanted to always keep sprinkling a little bit of gene information in here, but um, do you want to say anything about that? Like, like do yeah, you, well, I'm sure your immune system was really affected too. And well, I think, I think in my experience, you know, with fatigue was a classic example of multiple systems being affected. Then my <laughs> digestive system had all kinds of issues. So I wasn't breaking food down and providing the raw nutrients then for mitochondrial function. Then I think often what happens is the, um, the whole adrenal HPA axis then starts to compensate because you're not producing enough normal energy. So you go to your energy reserves as a way to try and compensate against that. Then you, of course, you have impacted immunity. So you either have a hyperactive immune system. So you get food intolerances, you start to react to all kinds of things that you don't need to be reacting to, or your immune system becomes depleted and you go down with every, every cold or flu or bug that's going around. Mm -hmm. But I think, mm -hmm. you know, stress if we just talk about what stress is for a minute, mm -hmm. stress is, people often think about stress as the kind of stressed executive that's got too many meetings in the day and is kind of, you know, wired and stressed at the end of the day. But I think stress is a much broader and much bigger thing than that. The way that I would look at stress is any time where your nervous system is activated, like your nervous system is triggered into a response, where your sympathetic nervous system is, is, is pumping. And there's many, many things that can cause that. In fact, if we look at, take the example of, of, of chronic fatigue, I've worked with people that had enormously stressful jobs, you know, city traders working on the kind of trading floor with, you know, millions or tens or hundreds of millions of pounds being kind of lost and made in kind of minutes. And going from that to being housebound with chronic fatigue and, you know, they're kind of talk, talking to me and they're saying, well, yeah, I used to be stressed. I was on a trading floor and I was working 16 hours a day and then I was going to the gym to, you know, and doing a kind of running 10K as a way to calm my nervous system. How can I possibly be stressed now? But actually, if stress, if the demands placed upon us are more than the supply of resources we have to meet those, the system becomes stressed. Another way of looking at it is that if you've got $100 of income a day and you spend 90, you're okay. If you've got $100, you spend 110, you're going to go into your reserves. And if you keep doing that after a while, you go bankrupt, your system runs out. Mm -hmm. Someone's capacity might go from $100 a day down to $30. So this city trader might be home, they might be completely burnt out, and they're only producing $30 a day of an income that say that's coming in, and they're spending 35 
And they're saying, well, I'm doing a third of what I was doing before. How can I possibly be stressed? But the resources, the income is so much less that if the outgoing is more, the system becomes stressed. So we can find that over time, our stress tolerance is going down and down because our capacity is going down and down. So we might be reducing our spending, but our resources are going down faster. Another way of looking at this is someone can be stressed because they are a helper by nature and they want to give to and support other people. So they're always giving out of energy. So they're always giving and caring. That becomes depleting. Someone can become stressed because they have a predisposition towards anxiety. So they tend to worry about things. Their way of feeling safe in the world is to worry about all the things that might go wrong, think about all the ways they might deal with that. And if then that all works out, then they can relax. Someone might be a perfectionist, that they value themselves by getting everything perfectly right. So we can have these ways of approaching our life that are not us being the stressed out city executive. We might be a stay at home mom, we might be retired, we might be a student. But if we're living in a way where our system is constantly being put under pressure and being put under stress, then our system is is stressed. And there's a very big difference between the kind of healthy, kind of protective forms of acute stress, like thousands of years ago, we're walking along, out jumps a saber-toothed tiger, and we have one of three choices. We fight the tiger, we flight, we run away, or we freeze, and we hope the tiger hasn't seen us, or we kind of feign death and pretend we're dead so it doesn't bother attacking us. We might be walking down the street in you know, London or New York or LA or whatever, and we don't see the truck that's flying down the street, and we walk out, and then suddenly we see we're about to get hit, we jump back onto the sidewalk or the pavement, and we get a big hit of adrenaline, because we're probably not going to fight the truck. We probably are going to flight and try and get away. So that kind of acute stress is, is a necessary healthy survival response. There's a very big difference between that form of acute sudden stress, where then our parasympathetic nervous system kicks in, our nervous system calms down, the body rebalances and everything goes back to normal, and a chronic stress where it's like the saber-toothed tiger is hunting us and chasing us the whole time. Or everywhere we go, there's an enormous juggernaut bearing down on us and we're constantly in danger. With that sort of chronic stress, that's what really has an impact upon our genes. That are, we are not biologically um, designed. Like The body takes a long time to evolve through nature. And it's mm-hmm. only in a relatively short period of time that the world has changed in such a way that we have mobile phones, meaning we're receiving emails up until the minute we go to sleep in the morning. And it's the first thing we do when we wake up. So the fact that there's all these demands upon us to all these expectations to, you know, women now don't just need to be great mothers and wives. They also have to have amazing careers and men don't just have to have careers. They also have to be emotionally present fathers that are available. Mm -hmm. All of these expectations and pressures mean that we can be in danger of living in a state of chronic stress, but we don't, we're so, it's an experiment that I'm not, I haven't personally done and I'm not recommending people do, but so I'm told if you drop a frog in a glass of boiling water, it will jump out. If you drop a frog in a glass of cold water and you gradually boil the water, it will stay in there, it will get fried. It won't notice the change in temperature. Many of us have got so normalized to our nervous system being overactivated 
that we don't realize we're in that state, but biologically we are simply not designed, our genes are not, are not prepared for that kind of ongoing stress. And that's why the, the stress and the state of our nervous system is so important in epigenetics and, and gene expression. Well, you've just led perfectly into the comp gene, COMT, which is, so when I look at people's genes, I see that many, many people have a variant or variants in this gene. So when they become stressed, um, their dopamine, adrenaline, noradrenaline goes up, obviously, and then they can't, and with certain variants, like if it's slow, if this is slowed down, which I see often in people, they can't clear that. Now, it's so interesting that you mentioned that about the saber true typer because this gene was actually protective back in those days. You know, you would have been walking along and you would have heard something maybe rustling in the bushes and you thought, uh-oh, danger. You know, and so your dopamine goes up, you become very, very alert and focused. Your adrenaline goes up. If you have to run away, you can. And then, um, and though... Now, people that their dopamine stayed up, they survived. The person whose dopamine just and adrenaline and all just cleared out rather quickly, they would have thought, oh, well, it's okay. And then the thing jumped out and ate them. So, so it was a survival gene back in those days. But today, as you said, we're under this constant stress. People's dopamine, adrenaline stays up. They can't clear it. And then they're the first ones to... Uh, be really difficult to get along with. You know, they uh, start going off, like kind of being crazy and yelling at everybody around them that they love. Uh, so I think it's a really important gene to know about, to understand about yourself so that you can start to control that. Um, so what would you, how would you say to somebody with this gene um, that they're, they're just, they can't clear it? What would you tell them to do? Yeah, so I think part of this is, Awareness is really important. So one of the things that I very heavily emphasize when I work with people one-on-one and in groups is that we're all different. We're all genetically different. And there are patterns of behavior. And then you've just given a good example in terms of, of certain genetic expression that people may have, which means that, for example, they struggle to switch off and calm their system. If someone knows that's true for them. So I, I often say, if you can see it, you don't have to be it. So if you have awareness of the issue, if you know that's true for you, then there's a few things that you'd want to do. One of which is you'd want to understand what are some of the triggers that cause your system to become overactivated. So what are the ways that your system gets wired in the first place? And then what are some of the behaviors or habits you might need to put in place to prevent that or to ensure that you can calm the system and what are some of the things that you can do to train your system to be in a more calm state generally? So to give some examples, if somebody knows that once they get past a certain threshold, there's a certain point of stress that they reach, that then it's really hard to, to, to calm the system down. Mm -hmm. One of the things that I might recommend is say, okay, well, if that threshold is if you spend eight hours a day at a desk without a break. Let's say you get to work at eight o'clock in the morning and you're there until four o'clock in the afternoon. And the days that you don't stop for lunch, the days that you don't get any fresh air, the days that you don't have any kind of emotionally satisfying contact, you're just in a kind of doing mode, then you come home at four or five or six or seven o'clock and then you're kind of wired all evening. Then we need to start to look at, well, 
if you meditate or you do some kind of calming practice or you perhaps it's exercise first thing, does that mean that your system goes in with more capacity? Do you need to have a break at lunchtime where you actually go out and you get, there's a lot of research on how sunlight affects circadian rhythms, for example. Mm -hmm. You need to go out Mm -hmm. and get some sunlight. Is it the case that when you get back from work, before transitioning from your work role, for example, to your family role, do you need to go and soak in a hot bath for 15 minutes to raise your body's temperature to then allow it as it comes down for your body to come back into a calm state as you do that? So sometimes it can be as simple as looking at the habits that we have around our routine to know that that's a sensitivity for my system. So I need to structure my life in such a way that prevents that. I also think that that these, the way that we think and the way that our nervous system functions, it becomes wired. If you think about it from a point of view of, of neuroplasticity, the brain gets wired towards certain ways of being. So if, for example, we have certain, certain triggers. So a trigger might be, for example, that um, we have a, an achiever pattern because we define our self-worth by what we do and what we achieve. And the kind of underlying sense is, and we may not kind of um, talk about it this way, but what's really going on is on a deeper level, we don't really feel we're enough as we are. So we feel that we need to have accomplishments and we need to have status and we need to have achievements in our life. That if we deal with some of those underlying issues, we actually really work on the underlying self-esteem and self-worth issues in that person. They don't, they're not, it's almost like an alcoholic that after a while, if someone drinks alcohol enough, Alcohol doesn't make them feel better. Alcohol takes them to neutral. So they get so dependent upon alcohol that actually that's why when they stop, they have withdrawal. And what you notice with alcoholics is after a while, they're drinking just to, re- they're drinking to regulate their system. Like they've got so normalized to that. That if we're addicted to an achiever pattern, for example, we need a certain level of accomplishment, validation, kind of what I would call narcissistic supplies, like people telling us we're doing great, we're doing really well, for our system to settle. Like we don't feel safe, we don't feel enough without that. It becomes an enormous stress to the system. If we can then work on some of those underlying issues, and really build, perhaps that's dealing with past trauma, perhaps that's dealing with how we relate to our body, perhaps that's dealing with um, kind of underlying emotional issues that haven't been resolved. But if we can really start to create balance and and a healthy relationship to the body, we're less in need of driving ourselves in that way with those sorts of patterns. You know, um, I keep hearing that depression is the number one problem all over the world today. And so what what would you say that depression could you just talk about the um, yeah. connection between so, depression and say, you know, what's happening with our cells, yeah. for example, and well, depression stress, is not a obviously depression and stress. Yeah. Like. yeah. Well, depression is not a condition. Depression is a symptom is generally mm-hmm. how, how I would talk about it. There is, there are times where there is a biochemical depression and for example, someone's got an excess of toxicity in the system and that's causing feelings of, right? There are various biomedical causes of depression, but a lot of the depression that people experience is actually psycho-emotional in origin. And there, again, there are different categories of that. There's what I would call um, anxiety-induced depression. It's like the system is so overstimulated that it actually goes into a shutdown response. It's like we're so wired and we're so stressed 
that actually the system can't handle it anymore and then it goes to shut down and we experience depression. Or there's depression where there is a sense of just, we can't, like life becomes overwhelming and there's what we call the three Ps in depression. It's personal, like this is happening to me, like my life is, is in a mess. It's permanent, it's always gonna be this way, like it's never gonna change and it's pervasive. Like every area of my life is being, and that's what it feels like when someone's severely depressed. It's like, it's personal, it's permanent, and it's pervasive. And rarely is that actually true. That's normally a perception that's a result of being in a state of overwhelm. And I think it's probably worth, um, if we can talk a little bit about some of the ways that stress actually impacts us on a cellular level. Some really interesting research by a researcher called Dr. Robert Navio um, around cell danger response. And cell danger response is a kind of, it's the body going into a state of self-protection and self-defense. So, you know, self-defense being nature's oldest law, if you go back to, you know, John Dryden back in 1681, that the body has to protect itself to, 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 to stay safe. And the body's not stupid. <laughs> like the body has developed ways over the years that when we are under threat, be that a, a physical threat, like a danger in the environment, or that be a psychological threat. And that could be something like, you know, being in a traumatic environment, being in an abusive relationship, going through a divorce, going through a bankruptcy, but going through something that is a threat to our existence the body fundamentally shifts in the way that it responds because the body has evolved over the years to protect itself. So if we think about the mitochondria, the mitochondria being the kind of um, powerhouse of our, of our kind of energy, that's how the body's you know, producing our physical capacity. But mitochondria also like the cells like almost like the canaries in the coal mine. If you think back in coal mining days, in fact, my, my grandfather, my father's side was a coal miner. But back in um, the days of the coal mines, they would take a canary down into the coal mine. And the purpose of the canary was if there was a gas leak, the canary would, would go unconscious. And that would be a sign, it would be an early warning sign for the miners to get out. Interestingly, the, if they got out quickly enough, the canary would then regain consciousness and it would be fine. So they've kind of reused these canaries as a way of, of, of seeing if there was danger. In addition to the mitochondria being our kind of energy powerhouse, they also have an, an equally important role. They are like the canaries in the, in the coal mine. So the mitochondria have two, within the kind of cell danger response, we talk about there are two different, quite different functions that the mitochondria do. Yes, the mitochondria are an energy carrier and they are the kind of metabolism of our energy, but they also are a signaling molecule that signals to neighboring cells there is stress in the environment. Now, what's interesting is it's a kind of somewhat of a binary process. So if the body's in a calm state, if the environment is safe, then mitochondria producing energy, we feel fine, we go about our daily life. If we are under threat, the mitochondria will shift in their focus. They will, they will turn off energy production and they will turn on this signaling molecule process to tell the other cells we are under threat and we need to prioritize survival. 
So within cell danger response, one of the things that we see is we see a decrease in energy. This is why it's very relevant to chronic fatigue syndrome, that if people are in a high state of stress, beyond the impacts on the immune system, the digestive system, all the things that we know, there is a direct impact on mitochondrial function. But this is also, um, Dr. Robert Navio's work is also looking at this in many, many other contexts, including things like autism. There's been some interesting papers that he's been publishing research uh, recently around that. And actually using um, pharmaceuticals to turn off the cell danger response. There's a very interesting recent paper showing just at one dose, and a um, statistically significant improvement in a small group of, um, of autist, autistic patients. So what we start to see is stress is not just it's bad for immunity. We know, I'm sure people will know about the research around students at exam time that things like natural killer cell activity is suppressed on, uh, under the stress of exams. There's also fascinating research around um, doing uh, muscle biopsies and people that are under severe stress. It takes 25% longer for the body to, to heal from the wound of the biopsy. But there is a direct impact between stress and mitochondrial function and energy production. And we can do everything in the world using nutraceuticals and diet to work to optimize gene function. But if our system is in a state of stress, our cells are literally changing the way that they function. You know, the mitochondria, I'll just sprinkle this in, have their own set of genes. And they're inside, of course, the cell. And the cell has its 20,000-something genes. But the mitochondria have about much less, only about three, three to 400 of their own genes. Um, I'm glad you brought up all this about the cell danger response. Um, I've worked with, you know, families whose children have autism and um, I, I've also, uh, let's see, years and years ago, about 40 years ago, actually, I worked with um, James Diodamo, who was really the first person to talk about blood type. And um, he found, he was a blood type A, his son, Peter Diodamo, blood type A, I'm an A. So I started, um, so I was actually a patient of the, the father, James. And then I learned, you know, all this information about blood type, became friends with Anne-Louise Gittleman. She is really, was into blood type too. So I've always been asking people, what's your blood type? And when I started working with families with autism, the, um, I'd, I'd ask, you know, to the mom and what's your son's blood type or whatever. Most of them are blood type A. And I've had that verified with other uh, practitioners like Dr. Jeffrey Bradstreet, checked his file, noticed that too. And what I'm personally doing right now is trying to verify when I, um, you know, look at, when I put somebody into my program and I, I'll put their, their blood type in there too to see if there is a relationship between uh, that say in the comp gene or some of the other stress genes because um, because um, that's one thing that the Japanese have identified. They've done 60 years of research on blood type and personality and A's just don't handle stress very well at all. They don't recommend they go into stressful situations. They think like leaders of a company, for example, they think an O does a much better job of that. So um, I'm just sprinkling that in. I'm sure you haven't even looked at that because no one does, but um, a lot of people are blood type A and a whole lot of people have the comp gene, by the way, uh, just because it was a survival gene. So for people, when they look into their, uh, uh, get their genes tested and millions of people already have, I think it's really, really important to look up this, your, this comp gene and see, are you the person that's a fast metabolizer of dopamine? And then you tend to be more, um, 
like ADD, are you a slow metabolizer like many of us that, because uh, you would be a lot, your ancestors would have survived and everything you're saying, everything you're just hitting right on the very core of what we need to know. So I love how you explain things and I love that you brought that whole thing in about the mitochondria and stress because that's very new information. Um, a lot of people just think, they always say mitochondria are the powerhouse of the cell, but that's it. They don't go any further. So that's really brilliant what you said. And I hope people heard that and go back and listen to this, your talk again, because it's, it's, you know, the other thing too that I've evolved into really being fascinated with is, the, um, is DNA damage because stress damages. There's many things that damage. The, the DNA are actually very, very fragile. And as our DNA becomes damaged, we don't realize that it's happening because we don't feel like if you damage your toe because you subject you can feel that but you don't feel dna damage and there's a lot of things that are, are the way we eat not enough sleep and so on but stress i would put stress because it's so chronic it's everything you said i would put that at the very top of the list for dna damage and um do you um do you want to say anything about that because yeah well it, it's this is the I, I core yeah, so one of the things I would say, say there, I think particularly, is that the body has a remarkable ability to heal. But for healing to happen, the body has to be in a healing state. And one of the things that's really interesting with the, the Optimum Health Clinic is we have a team of functional medicine trained nutritionists and we have a team of psychology practitioners. And so we work with this, this combined approach. And one of the things that I'm personally particularly interested in is sequencing of treatment. So at what point do you do this, this piece to this piece to this piece? And sometimes recovery from a chronic condition, it's a little bit like you can have the right code for the safe, but you've got the numbers in the wrong order. And if you've got the numbers in the wrong order, the safe still won't open. So one of the things, for example, we look at is the stages of recovery and different interventions can be relevant at different stages of the recovery. So to give an example of that, you can have somebody who, let's say they've got um, small intestinal bacterial overgrowth and mm -hmm. they've, they've got issues with the digestive system, they've got a bunch of food intolerances, and let's say their adrenals are working hard to compensate and they've got mitochondrial issues. So in that case, you would look at it, and some people would go, let's just give them all the raw ingredients for mitochondrial function. Let's give them D-ribose, carnitine, coenzyme A, whatever, and let's just support the mitochondria. But actually, a little bit like I was saying, depression is normally a symptom rather than a condition mm -hmm. in of itself. Often, poor mitochondrial function is a symptom rather than a condition in of itself. Because you want to go further up that chain and go, well, hang on. Why, why is there not enough raw nutrients getting into the, into the Krebs cycle? Well, actually, it's because there's issue of the digestion. Okay, so we, we can see a SIBO issue. So do we go in with, you know, antimicrobials? Do we go in with antibiotics like rifaximin, neomycin, or whatever? But then we try and do that, and the person's system just goes crazy. It reacts to all of the things that we try, we try to use for the intervention. So why is that? It's because the nervous system is over-agitated. It's a little bit like before um, the, and I'm sure the same thing has happened in other places, I'm sure it's happened in New York, but after the London bombings uh, back in 2004 or five, whenever it was, that before that people would leave their gym bag or their laptop on the London Underground 
kind of all the time on the subway in London. No one would think about it. And then someone would leave their tennis shoes and a bag on the London Underground and the whole thing would get shut down. It would be like a massive terrorist threat because obviously, understandably, the, the, the whole thing is hyper-reactive and hyper-responsive. Same thing happens in the immune system when the nervous system is overactivated. So the body starts reacting to supplements that are potentially going to help it because it's in such a state of high arousal. So what we often will find is we have to calm the system to then be able to work with other interventions that we're going to work with. And so going back to what you were saying around damage in, in, in the genes, it's not just about correcting physical imbalances. For the body to be able to actually heal, like the body has an amazing capacity towards self-healing. You know, if we, if, we get a, if we get a cut, as long as we keep it clean, and if the skin's too far apart, we might just kind of sew it back together. But the sewing, the stitches don't heal the cut, the body heals mm -hmm. the cut. If we break, um, we break our leg, as long as we set the bone, Okay, we might take some painkillers if the pain's if the break's particularly painful, but the body heals it. In fact, with a break broken bone, the site of the break, as long as it heals, um, I broke a finger many years ago, didn't get set. Not, not, it's not a good example. But if with a bone, with a broken bone generally, the site of the break's actually the strongest part of the bone once it's healed. So the body heals. The body has got a remarkable ability to do that. The question is often not what is causing someone to, to get sick. The question is what is stopping healing? What is in the way of that healing process? One of the factors is often the fact that the system is in such a high state of stress, going back to cell danger response, the body is prioritizing, signaling the fact we're under threat and, the, and there is danger over energy production. Or put another way, it is prioritizing survival over healing. And if, you're being if we're being chased by that saber-toothed tiger, digesting the, the wonderful lunch we had beforehand is not a biological priority. Mm. Healing the cut that we got um, you know, the night before is not important. Right now, we're just trying to escape. So for, for the DNA to be able to repair, for the body to be able to heal, the system has to be in a healing state so healing can be prioritized. Yeah, I'm so glad you brought that up because for 20 years I've been, body ecology is based on seven principles and one of them is a step-by-step -step principle. And the universe is, it's a universal principle. In other words, everything right this minute, this whole interview is, you know, progressing in tiny little intervals uh, so that an hour or so goes by. And, and that's how, and you just explained that perfectly, you know, just step-by-step. -step. We And that's where I've, felt for years people are making a mistake like doctors for example they're not trained to know this at all so they don't they just go in and give you their prescription or tell you to do this or that when there's a more a bigger problem that's the core problem that they're not going down to that root cause where what's the root cause and again lack not enough sleep so you handle stress and stress probably is the most root cause of everything we're dealing with today well, it's interesting, actually, what you, you're mentioning sleep, because I think mm -hmm. sleep's another really good example about the role that, that stress plays. And I think, you know, things like sleep hygiene, like the habits that we have before we go to sleep at night, I think are important. And I think sometimes people need um, certain, um, it might be hormones, it might be other ways of supporting the brain in, in, in settling and sleeping. But 
one of the ways that I come at it is that <coughs> what happens at night is normally a reflection of what's been happening in the system during the day. So if we look at it from the point of view of brainwave patterns, this is, this is very oversimplified, but there are four types of brainwave patterns that we produce. There's beta, and beta is kind of busy mind. So we're kind of, we're busy and we're concentrating, we're focusing. There's alpha, which is the kind of relaxed awareness. Often people meditate. One of the things they're doing is they're producing more alpha. There's theta, which is when we're awake, we're daydreaming. So when we're kind of off thinking about something else or when we're sleeping, when we're dreaming. So it's dreaming sleep. There's then delta, which is deep sleep. Now, we're producing all of these brainwaves all of the time. It's which of these patterns are predominant at any particular point. Mm -hmm. If we are overly busy in our brain during the day, so we're, we're, we're overstressed or we're overstimulated, we're producing more beta, which means we're producing less alpha. Alpha is when the brain and the nervous system is resting. So if we're constantly in the state of beta, we're not getting enough downtime. Our system doesn't get the chance to, to rest, restore, repair, to you know, digest and all of those things. But I think what's particularly important here is then when we come to sleep at night, we've got all of this mental activity. Firstly, what this means is it's harder for the brain just to settle and relax. If the brain was kind of up here during the day and this is deep sleep, it's got a long way to come. If it was just here, we just kind of relax, and it's a little bit like a bar of soap under the water in the bath. You let go, and it just kind of naturally floats. But if we've been super stimulated, it's a much further journey we need to go on. Also, it's in dreaming sleep, in theta, that we're processing all of these thoughts in the day. So if we've had lots of kind of thinking and worrying and stressing, we've got more stuff to process. The body doesn't tell the difference between something that's real and something that's vividly imagined. This is why people that, can, you know, that have phobias can imagine something they're phobic about and their whole nervous system responds as though it's real. So if we have lots of dreaming sleep, that's tiring. Like, that's why we can wake up and we can feel like we've run a marathon because we kind of did because we were running away from a metaphorical saber-toothed tiger, let's say, in the sleep. But also, it's in delta sleep, it's in deep sleep, that we release growth hormone. A whole bunch of our healing processes happen in deep sleep. The more busy our mind is during the day, the more dreaming sleep we have at night, that's draining, and the less restorative deep healing sleep that we have. And so it becomes, in terms of working with sleep, yes, as I said, sleep hygiene can be important. There are certain nutraceutical approaches that, and pharmaceutical approaches that may be important, but we need to deal with our stress during the day. We need to deal with all of those things which are causing our nervous system to constantly be overactivated, overstimulated, because then if we don't do that, when we go to sleep at night, even we may be someone that struggles to get to sleep, we may be someone that struggles to stay asleep, or we may be someone that just struggles to get quality of sleep. But if we don't get good sleep, that impacts everything. Apart from the damage it has on our, on our, on our genes, it's also impacting our ability to heal. It's impacting our longevity. It's, it's, everything is being impacted if we're not getting quality sleep. But how do you help somebody when they come to the clinic there and they aren't sleeping? Because there's actually a whole bunch of genes related to not sleeping. I have 
only one copy, fortunately, but there's a gene um, that turns, so you've got to make melatonin to even get sleepy. So this gene is the gene between turning serotonin into melatonin. And you see that, you know, people have an issue with that. Maybe, maybe they have no problem when they're young, but as we get older, the genes aren't working well anyway, and then they don't work well if you've got these variants. So if you, take, if you don't turn serotonin into melatonin because you've got this genetic variant, you know, obviously that, that's a good, that person can do well to take a little bit of melatonin to make them get sleepy. But melatonin doesn't necessarily keep you asleep at all, it, not unless you take the time-released version, uh, same release. But what, what would you say to that person that has, um, you know, just basically an issue? I, I, my, um, so I have this gene that doesn't turn uh, serotonin into melatonin. So, but my father's sister... She never sleeps ever. I mean, you, you just she'll email you at any time of the day, and I'm thinking, uh, does she ever sleep? I, you know, so she's aging amazingly well for not, but I would never want to be like her. So, can you get, give us some really good tips on how you guide people when they're having sleeping issues? Yeah. So sometimes there are things that you need to do specifically to address sleep, and that may be things like ensuring that you don't have um, used devices, partly for the, um, for the kind of light stimulation, but also just because they're, they are designed, people don't realize that, um, and I was trying to explain this to my eight-year-old daughter the other day, who was, who was begging to go onto TikTok. I was trying to explain to her that the social media apps and devices, they are designed to be addictive. There are entire departments that maybe not be called this, but there are entire departments within tech companies whose job it is. They'll use words like gamify and to make, make the device sticky that people want, but they're designed to be addictive. And that's why you have things like variable rewards. It's, it's, it's gambling science applied to social media. So partly it's things like sleep hygiene. It's not using those kind of things in the hours before going to bed at night. There may well be things, as you mentioned, on a uh, hormonal level or on a potentially also on a blood sugar level, but things that need to be looked at from a kind of functional medicine, uh, nutritional perspective. But those things being considered, the way that I tend to look at sleep is as a symptom of an overall imbalance in someone's life and someone's system. And so I'm looking at things like, is someone's, it's the way that someone's approaching their life energy depleting. Are they, are they running helper patterns? They're making other people's needs more important than their own. Are they running achiever patterns? They're defining their self-worth by what they do and what they achieve. Mm -hmm. Are they running anxiety patterns where they're, they don't feel safe unless their mind is kind of constantly kind of looking for danger. Is there trauma? Is there unprocessed and unresolved things in the past which are triggering the system now? So we need to look at those pieces. We need to deal with, with those underlying um, personality patterns. We need to look at how the nervous system is wired. A lot of this is also habit. Like it's almost like we've got Olympic medal standard kind of ability to get stressed, like we've trained our system. And so we need techniques and practices to train our system to function differently. That may well be things like meditation and mindfulness, that certainly has a place. The, the limitation I think of those approaches is if we're stressed to here and we calm to here, we stop 
the practice, and then we gradually go back up again. So we need to then understand what are the triggers, what are the thought patterns, what are the stimuluses that cause our system to get wired. And then using, um, in the way that I work with people, we use techniques from things like um, NLP, neurolinguistic programming. We use techniques from um, hypnotherapy, hypnosis, or different ways to, to teach people how to reset their system, how when they get triggered, how to become aware of that, to stop the response and to calm the system. And that becomes, for a while, a real habit that people have to train. They have to literally, it's a little bit like having a dog that's, that keeps jumping on the sofa and it, and it thinks the sofa is its, its dog bed. And each time you see it, you kind of push it off. And you have to do that enough that after a while, it kind of looks at you, it looks at the, bed, the, the sofa, looks back at you and goes off to its basket on the floor. That you have to, with neuroplasticity, you have to rewire the brain to respond differently. So that can be really important with these stress responses that they're almost unconscious patterns that are happening. Um, and we, there's, there's a term in uh, something called polyvagal theory of, of neuroception. It's like perception of the nervous system. Like the system responds before we even cognitively think about something. It just is triggered by the environment. So we have to become aware of those triggers and then we have to train the system to, to reset. The, the, the next piece that is is super important is part of the reason why we tend to be so overstimulated that we, we're so busy in our minds is we are escaping the emotions and the unresolved material in our bodies. So trauma, unresolved emotions, broken hearts, disappointment, um, self-worth issues, this stuff lives in our body. The feelings, and, and the emotions. Can you add, can you add denial to that too? Because I, yeah. I feel a lot of people yeah. are living in relationships and they're not happy, but they're kind of not letting themselves admit it. And maybe they're, um, you know, living with somebody that's almost abusive or <clears throat> suppressing them, but they're in denial because there's other good things. I just see that constantly when I work yes. with people too. I think that's absolutely right. And in fact, if we go back to our caveman example and we talked about fight, flight, or freeze from that saber-toothed tiger. Mm -hmm. But if we think the saber-toothed tiger is still hunting, is it safe to sleep? Not really, because we're under threat. So we kind of sleep with one eye open. We kind of don't mm -hmm. fully surrender and let go because we may need to respond immediately to escape the saber-toothed tiger. So if we're in a, a physically or emotionally abusive relationship and we've got sleep problems, it's because your system's trying to keep you safe. It thinks you're in danger. And so it, under danger, it's not safe for the system to fully surrender and let go. So one of the reasons why we end up so much in our heads is because all of this emotional stuff is in our body and it's overwhelming and we don't know how to deal with it. So we speed up to escape. We go to our mind to escape all of this material in our bodies. And so for, to truly calm the system in the long term not just to have techniques to kind of come if if we don't deal with the underlying stuff that's going on what happens is you spend your whole life applying techniques because you'll go, it's like your system's constantly wired and you're constantly calming it down as soon as you stop it's kind of wired again because it's a it's a response to escape from all of that stuff we don't have to resolve every emotional issue we've ever had of, of course not. that's not a realistic approach to life but we need to deal with the stuff which is impacting upon our quality of life now. And as we do that, 
we then find, and what I, you mentioned at the start, I, I run a 12-week um, online coaching program where we go mm-hmm. deep into a lot of this, this material. That, and people have described it like years of psychotherapy. And I've had psychotherapists go through the program saying, I learned more in 12 weeks than I learned in my entire training as a psychotherapist. But part of what we're doing is after we've taught um, meditation and mindfulness techniques at the start. We've then taught these kind of cognitive NLP techniques to help stop and reprogram these responses. The place we then go is dealing with these underlying emotional issues that are happening. We look at the emotional styles that we use to avoid, to distract, to state change, to get away from these, these things. But as we really start to work with those, then what happens is we can actually come back into our body. And for the body to truly heal, we have to be in it. If we're disconnected in our mind, we're not getting the signals of our body when we need to rest, when we're tired. We're not able to be in a truly healing state because we've got to fuel this adrenalized stress state. So part of the true resolution of um, an overactive stress nervous system is really coming back into our body, coming back into ourselves, and that becoming our safe place, that becoming the place where we truly have a sense of inner safety and inner holding, which is in us. It's not something outside of us we're constantly trying to get towards. You know, she's just saying so many things, light bulbs are going off right and left, but um, the, you mentioned the brain. And there's a gene, BDNF, which sends, it's a gene that produces brain-derived neurotrophic factor. And that's a really critical nutrient for the brain. Um, If we don't have enough of it, we're depressed, we die earlier. Um, You get dementia, for example. And so the BDNF BDNF gene is often, it has variants in it. There's a lot of things you can do to, but will we control our genes? That's the other thing, everything you're saying, everything you're saying is um, all part of DNA repair. It's also us controlling these genes. Like if you do have a lot of variants in the genes that are related to sleep, you can turn them off or keep them from being expressed. So everything you said is really great information. Um, But the, so I wanted to just mention once again, it's stress and sleep and sunshine and exercise and connecting with people that, make us have more brain-derived neurotrophic factors. So it always comes back to the epigenetics. And it seems like it's the same thing all the time. You've got to reduce stress. You've got to sleep. Uh, We do need vitamin D and sunshine, and and we need relationships. And actually, that was one of the things I thought was was really fascinating in the lab in UCLA, the social genomics lab. One of the things they've discovered that really triggers these genes that inflame the uh, the immune system and um, you know, suppress our antiviral genes that, that is social isolation. And I thought it was interesting in the beginning when you were talking about being 16 years old and not having friends anymore because you can't play sports or have any energy. You were socially isolated also, you know, too. And that, that's another, and as people become more depressed, they pull themselves out away and they become more socially isolated. So I'm sure that's a major part of your yeah program the trouble it's it's, it's a really interesting point you you just made that exactly that that the coping strategy that we use when we're under chronic stress is we think well i'll go i'll go and see my friends less because i I haven't got the energy 
And then if we end up with kind of fatigue, we may also end up, well, I can't work now because I haven't got the energy to work. And then we find with family, they don't really understand what's happening. And they're kind of saying, oh, you're just depressed. You need to kind of, you know, get, you know, go to the gym and you'll feel. So our, our kind of circle of people gets smaller and smaller and smaller because we're trying to reduce the stresses. But what we often forget is that there's all, even if, even with people where we have complex relationships or where we may not share exactly the same worldview, we are social creatures. And there is a certain emotional holding and support that comes from having contact with the world. And in fact, one of the things that we find, um, we talk about three stages of recovery from um, fatigue, but the stages also map over to um, chronic stress and um, trauma and such things as well. That the, the kind of the first stage is the kind of crash stage where we go into overwhelm and the system kind of needs that time for that initial repair. But then in stage two, what we call tired and wired, we're really working on calming the system. But normally that's calming the system in isolation. Like we're not in around other people. We're just trying to be in a calm healing state by ourselves. But if people stop there, the problem they have is I'm calm by myself, but I'm stressed by the world. Therefore, I just won't go into the world. And the point that I always make to people is that a full recovery, be it from trauma, be it from chronic stress, be it from chronic fatigue, is to be able to come fully back into the world. And that's learning how to be in a calm healing state around other people. That's learning how to be your authentic self around other people. But there's a kind of, it's interesting how we can kind of think, well, they're dysfunctional or they don't see the world the way that I see the world. Therefore, the resolution is just to cut those people from my life. And there is a place that that's, you know, there is a place where we need to find the people in our life that don't support us and put some boundaries in place. So I'm, mm. I'm not saying that, that, that that's not true because it is true. And, you know, it's kind of like people go into psychotherapy and, and I say this as someone that spent the last um, 17 years working as a practitioner, but also have spent many years myself in therapy. I'm married to a psychotherapist. Like this is a world <laughs> that I deeply love and respect. But one of the things that I notice is people go into therapy and they get in touch with their anger and frustration towards their parents, for example. And it's a really healthy therapeutic development step to feel that anger, to express it. And they may take some distance. They may put some boundaries in place. But what saddens me is a lot of people think that that's the end point. And what they don't realize is that the resolution is not just to feel your anger. Yes, you have to feel your anger and process it. But it's also finding a place of having true love and acceptance for the people in your life, despite all of their imperfections and despite all of the challenges that are there. And there's something that's deeply nurturing of finding a way to be in healthy relationship with the, with family, with friends. And yes, that means being authentic to ourselves. Yes, that means having appropriate boundaries in place. But finding the way to still be able to be in a relationship is something that I'm very passionate about because I think it's very sad how people can end up doing more and more self-development. And actually what's really happening is they're just getting more and more isolated and there's almost like a megalomania bred of isolation. You see it in politics that people go deeper into silos of, of, of belief and they get more and more isolated from, from the rest of the world. Mm -hmm. Well, another tool. And see, that's why I think genes are uh, an important tool to add to everything. And, and 
you know, people are not using genes much yet, but it's the future forever for us. There are certain genes related to personality and behavior. And if you know that about yourself, you know, you've got the comp gene, or you've got these other issues, then I, I know for myself, it really started helping me understand myself better. So a lot of times we're angry with people because we blame them. And then you can start seeing, well, you know, this is where I'm at fault here in these relationships too. Or this other person that I'm having this trouble with, it's just like me. They've got the same genes. Like let's say you have a son or daughter or someone in there. They have the same genes. Obviously, they're going to react the same way. So you might rub, you know, personalities with each other. But, um, you know, a lot of, some people, quite a few, more and more people I'm hearing saying, well, we're just not ready for the, the genes, looking at our genes right now is just not ready for prime time. But that, I totally disagree with that. We know so much about these groups of genes, you know, personality and behavior is one of those. Um, so, you know, the, so then you, you know that about a person, where do you go next? What's the workaround? Well, everything you're saying, you're just right on defining exactly what a person needs to do. Cause the, and then, and then we, we have the skills and the tools to, to get those personality and behavior genes to work really well. Yeah, I think any sort of map that helps us better understand ourselves and other people is, is immensely helpful. You know, there are different um, psychological maps. Map, you may be familiar with maps like the Enneagram, for example, which I use quite a lot in, in my work. It's yeah. really helpful to be able to, you know, and working with genes in the way that you, you, you're describing is another way of doing that, to be able to go, well, that's that person's way of functioning. And now I know that, I can find my way of being in relationship with that rather than making it personal about me and being in reaction to it or judging it and making it wrong. It's how do I find my way to be in healthy relationship with you knowing that that's the way that you're wired and that's the way that you function. Mm -hmm. Yeah. My, my youngest son has um, some of the same genes and, you know, he reacts in the same kind of way. Knowing that about him and me helped me understand like, I just won't go there when he starts to get, you know, uh, starts tricking, you know, just clashing. When we start to clash, I just like, start thinking, okay, it's our genes. You know, let's back off here. But you mentioned a, while, a little ways back about digestion. And I just want to throw the diet piece in there too, because, um, and you mentioned SIBO, which seems to be a big, big problem for people today. If you have gut dysbiosis and you're not digesting foods well, and uh, you're not getting the nutrients you need, underlying uh, your genes. I mean, genes work because they're nutrients that are cofactors to get them to work. So sometimes that's, it's not sometimes, you're really good. It's good to know, uh, is a person eating well and what nutrients are, are they deficient in? Magnesium, they say, you know, 80% of the world is deficient in magnesium. It's critical for that comp gene to be calmed down and quieted. Um, all the B vitamins, especially folate, B12, B6, B2, they're absolutely essential or you have big problems with your genes. Um, so, so diet, again, is playing a really big role. I just want to throw that in. I'm sure, do you, do you um, there, oh, you said you have a whole staff of nutritionists. Yeah, I think, it's, I think it's enormously important. And as much as I'm heavily em um, uh, emphasizing the importance of psychology and how we live our life and the stress of our nervous system, I'm emphasizing that with the, with the understanding that I'm not saying that's all that matters. I'm saying that, that how you eat, the relationships of your life, if you need certain supplements or certain, certain things, that's also crucially important. But it goes back really to, I think, the point we were touching on earlier, which is sequencing. 
that sometimes the, the order you do things is really important. And using that, that uh, analogy of a code for a safe, you might even have four out of five of the numbers you need in the right order, and you're missing one number. And until you get that number, the safe's not going to open. And that number might be that someone's listened to, you know, many, many summits. They've gone the whole way through um, this summit and they put everything in place. But if they haven't dealt with the fact that their nervous system is over agitated and stressed, everything else is not going to work. But it might be that someone's really worked on psychology and they've got their system in a really good place, but mm -hmm. they've got an, a physical piece until they address that. So it's, it's, I think the problem is that what tends to sell books and to make a video interesting and make an interview on TV or radio interesting is making things sound simple, saying it, it's all because of this, this one thing. Mm -hmm. Problem is when you, when you run a clinic with, with any one time a thousand people in treatment across 20 different practitioners, you kind of get at times overwhelmed by the complexity and the nuance of all these pieces. And of course, trying to put maps and, and organize that is a fascinating process, but it's rarely as simple as one thing. Everyone's body has its own unique code. And I think that's why understanding genes and something like this is really helpful because it gives you a map to understand why you might be responding differently to other people. But the resolution of that is unlikely to be one supplement or one dietary change or one psychological strategy. It's finding that the, the sequence or the code for your body and putting those pieces in place in the right way. Yeah, you're talking about epigenetics, which is what everybody right. soon after the scientists mapped out our, all of our genes, realized we had over 20,000 genes, they thought, and they thought they were going to fix the world and solve all kinds of health problems and great drugs. And they realized, wait, you know, the genes are just there waiting for a signal. And the signal is this epigenetic part. And, and you know, then what's the most critical things to focus on? Um, I do think diet is super, super critical. But like SIBO, it's got to be a diet that addresses gut dysbiosis for that. You know, so yeah. personalized diets are going to be... A, a diet of one, like your diet, just you, is really where we're going to into the future. Well, yeah, I, mean, I, 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 I find it kind of bonkers these days that we still have these debates around whether yeah. someone should be vegan or they should be paleo or they yeah. should be this or they should be that. And yeah. it's like, it's a little bit like people warring over religious or political beliefs. It's like, yeah, exactly. the, norm, the truth is everyone's got part of the jigsaw. And, you know, different people, different things are true for different people. And mm -hmm. if and your different body... different times, you know, you know that yeah, sequencing right. and, as you're talking about, blood, like, right now I maybe need this diet. I'm going to change it in a couple of months. Absolutely right. And, and you know, you, you talked about the blood typing um, before. That's one model of understanding. And there's obviously different models are helpful for different different people. And it's like... It may be that one person's body absolutely needs a paleo diet. And for somebody else, that same diet is the worst possible approach. And I know that's an unpopular comment because people tend to fall in camps of, I'm in the vegan camp or I'm in the paleo camp mm -hmm. or I'm in this camp or that camp. But the right diet for you is the right diet for you. The right diet for you is not the diet that was right for the person that wrote the book you were inspired by. It may be, but it may also not be. Well, I'm really glad that at 16 years old, you became ill and exhausted <laughs> because you that. wouldn't be where you are today. And I hope everybody listening that's in the same place, they're exhausted, 
They don't know where to go next. Um, obviously, where can they find you? Because this is a very basic, critical place to start. And I hope they also realize that uh, usually I have the same path. You know, when something goes wrong, it's really perfect. Louise Hay used to always say one of her favorite slogans was, out of this, only good will come. And that's certainly true for your 16-year-old illness. But um, where can people go to find out more information, especially to sign up for the 12-week course? That sounds like a priceless thing to do. It's a very wise thing to do. Yeah. Um, thank you, Donna. Um, so I'm involved in obviously a few different things between the Optimum Health Clinic. I run a practitioner training program in the process called Therapeutic Coaching that, that we created. Mm -hmm. Everything is in one place um, at alexhoward.tv. Um, so people go there, they'll find links to details on the reset program, which is the 12 week program we talked about. Um, there's a great, um, three part video series that really gives people the kind of the background and things we talked about, like cell danger response and go more into the science of that in that free three part video series. Um, people, I also do a daily, um, vlog. So each day I put out a video, people can, can, can find that at alexhoward.tv. Wow. Um, and as part of that, I also film um, therapy. So I do film sessions with people. So I work with clients. We film it and we put those out as part of the daily vlog. So there's a couple of dozen of film sessions people can watch. Um, but the best place you can find everything is alexhoward.tv. Wow, that's amazing. I'm sure when the summit's released here, you'll have lots and lots of people uh, signing up, and I hope so, because you've just given us priceless information. And thank you so much for saying yes to my invitation. Well, thank you for having me. It's been a real pleasure, Donna. I really appreciate it. So thank you.